Good morning. I'm Alex Mosed, and you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Uh, it's the start of the week, Monday morning. Stocks are up uh, on good earnings, big earnings week. Uh, past couple weeks, got a big earnings week this week. In general, I think uh, investors are feeling pretty good about things. They're feeling good about the economy. They're feeling good about trade. Um, the S&P 500 just hit an all-time high right now. So yeah, everyone's kind of doing pretty well, except for uh, retailers. City is downgrading American Eagle, Lululemon, L Brands. Um. Retailers just aren't doing so well, which is no surprise if you've been watching this show. In general, there just needs to be a uh, a hearkening back of the the size and scope of how much just retail square footage these retailers have on their leases, on their balance sheet. It's just not sustainable. Meanwhile, we are based in Manhattan. Literally, kind of every few blocks that I walk around this city now, I see a new Amazon Go store. Uh, and we were just talking about how Amazon is now licensing the Go technology to other retailers. And this is going to completely, this is going to be a game changer for the retail industry. Um, I'll be on CNBC's Power Lunch at 2.30 p.m. Eastern today to talk more about Amazon. So uh, tune in. So next topic here. We've also spoken about how in the U.S., uh, Facebook's Libra. Right. And how I don't completely agree with the whole Libra proposal. Um, things like the actual Libra organization should be under U.S. financial laws, not Swiss financial laws. But in general, I'm very pro Libra. Um, one of the reasons just being a selfish um, U.S. reason, which is that a lot of the users of something like this would actually be outside of the United States in emerging markets and markets where the users are underbanked, don't have access to as, as strong of a financial services infrastructure. Um, and how if we don't do it, China will do it. Well, some people had messaged into us saying, well, what does that mean China's going to do it? Well, this is what China's doing. And this has actually been underway for a couple of years now. Um, this article just came out. China's digital yuan is closing in. And so basically what it's saying is the People Bank People's Bank of China is set to, set to provide its own electronic version of the yuan soon, potentially the first major central bank in the world to issue a digital national currency. And they're saying that this is a direct challenge to uh, Alipay and uh, WeChat Pay, so from Tencent and from Alibaba slash Ant Financial. I think a lot of the government-led kind of innovation initiatives that China has gone about they're actually very smart. China's actually done a very good job um, at promoting kind of innovation. And whether that's setting regulation that prevents large tech, U.S. tech monopolies to come into China, and they've shielded their tech ecosystem quite well. That's why you have such a strong dominant Ant and Tencent and um, Baidu, et cetera, and many others. This says here, the central bank is trying to regain the power it lost. Is it simply cannot allow private companies to dominate payments, payments which lie at the heart of the finance system. This article doesn't talk as much about the international uh, component of this, but, but this is going to have a profound impact. Think about the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Think about Southeast Asia. 
Think about the Middle East where China is investing heavily. Think about the ability to now put the digital Chinese yuan currency into the hands of those countries. This is going to be a pretty big deal. So I expect this to come out in the next year or two. They've been poking away at this for the past couple of years. And uh, <clears throat> they say the currency is close to being out, but this is at earliest a 2020 thing, or it could be end of 2020, maybe early 2021. We'll see. But uh, they move relatively quickly. This chart shows you here against the other kind of central banks. Um, they're easily the, the farthest ahead out of any of these players, including the U.S. Fed. And um, yeah, you know, I got to give them credit. And this is exactly what's going to happen, where if you don't have something like this, uh, like a Libra alternative, then then it's just, um, you know, either the the People's Bank of China currency or, I mean, you can go with the fintech platforms. But, but the difference is that this currency is actually going to have some kind of an asset backing, which Libra has as well. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But this is... Um, Exactly what we've been talking about, the, the Chinese alternative. So this article is interesting. It came out a few weeks ago, and it's talking about the casino world is all set for a peer-to-peer platform revolution. Um, we've spoken about this before. We've spoken about how there's actually been more deals now in the casino betting world um, and tie-ups between the physical casino operators and the digital platform players, uh, one of whom is actually in plat, the, the platform ETF. So we've covered some of this, but uh, this article hits it on the head. And what we've been saying is, you know, if you think about traditional betting, it's linear, right? Where the the casino, let's say sports betting, they're betting or they're creating bets off of their own balance sheet, right? So they have a spread that they need to cover uh, one way or the other on depending upon, you know, which side of the spectrum wins that bet. Um, and so they need to protect that spread. Peer-to-peer betting, and what they're saying here can happen now, particularly in sports, um, is basically where I connect, say, Alex with Kirk, and we come up with our own bet, or we come up with our own terms, and you're basically cutting the middleman out, right? You're cutting the middleman, the essentially the bookie or the uh, casino, that is needing to now be the backstop for that bet, and the bookie needs to cover both sides of the bet. So if I cut out the middleman... And now I just correct, connect the two of us who are basically taking opposing sides of that bet. What's going to happen is you save on margin. And that means that you could um, essentially, A, have a wider product catalog of bets, right? You're just going to have a much broader spectrum of things that people might come up with. Maybe the odds aren't actually spot on, right? Maybe they're kind of skewed in, in one direction or the other. But hey, if you find a taker for it, then you find a taker for it, right? So you're going to have a wider product catalog spectrum, A. And B, you're just going to have cheaper economics to facilitate that bet, right? You don't have the traditional linear middleman uh, with the balance sheet in play. You just have someone who's who's uh, on either side, two people on either side of the bet, and the platform is now matchmaking supply and demand, basically, and then taking a cut. Um, it is more similar to a model where you have an online, um, you know, poker table and the platform is just enabling these people to play poker with each other and then taking a cut of the throughput of money spent playing poker as opposed to, hey, are the Patriots going to, you know, cover the over or whatever the, 
whatever the line is. So the article talks about how the Supreme Court and rulings and regulation has now enabled this to happen. We've covered some peer-to-peer startups that are actively doing this in this space. I think this is the next big space for casinos, um, is to have an ecosystem, online digital ecosystem, uh, which has a winner-take-all dynamic, which their physical infrastructure of having the actual casino now actually is a perfect complement to this world. And, um, you know, it's, this has a winner take all dynamic because if every casino, which there's now, you know, a number of different casino players out there, every casino has their own here to beer sports betting platform. Well, they just won't, it's not all apples to apples, right? Because there's a network effect here and the sports betting platform that has the most number of users and participants will naturally, A, have the widest product catalog of bets, and B, give you the most active matching of supply and demand, which means the most volume, the most liquidity, et cetera, i.e. the best experience. So if every if there's 10 different peer-to-peer sports betting platforms, uh, they just won't all be equal. And so what you'll find is that there will naturally be one or two winners in a market like this, and that's the demand and supply side network effect. It's kind of like a prosumer model because you're both a consumer and a producer um, in some sense. But we've seen other prosumer models, uh, particularly with like social media platforms um, or payment platforms. If you think about a Venmo where you're both, say, sending and receiving money, uh, there's a lot of similar dynamics here. Point is, you still have winner-take-all dynamics. uh, And whichever casino I think seizes upon the moment for this can really do a great job to extend their reach beyond their physical walls. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. We've spoken in the past about uh, Elliot, the activist investor, challenging AT&T, um, AT&T doing all these acquisitions, right? Uh, DirecTV, Time Warner, um, basically doing all these roll-ups of both dist- of like traditional distribution satellites and that kind of stuff, as well as very large content houses, Time Warner. Um, and them saying... You know, we're now like the we have all the components of a modern media conglomerate or something like that was Randall, the CEO's words a year ago or so. Um, I bet he's kind of biting his tongue on that. But basically, they're saying they're bowing to the pressure from activists. They're going to look at selling off up to $10 billion worth of non-core businesses uh, next year. I mean, and adding two new board members. And Randall loses his chairman uh, title. The DirecTV acquisition was $60 plus billion. I think the Time Warner acquisition was over $100 billion. So they're not committing to, to spinning those off. doesn't really sound like it's completely off the table, but it doesn't sound like they've made a decision to do it. Um, but I think Randall's getting a little bit of a power um, reduction. By losing the chairman title. Who else lost the chairman title recently? Dennis uh, Muhlenberg, the CEO of Boeing. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, he lost his chairman title, especially when we heard that the 737 MAX uh, planes weren't necessarily on schedule to be recommissioned. Um, So that's that's a clear sign. They are saying that they expect Randall to stay on through 2020. That's kind of interesting. but uh, he's definitely going to have to play ball with Elliot. Maybe this is the first round. I don't think that this is really what Elliot was looking for. All they're saying is basically 
they're going to pay off all their debt or a large amount of their debt ASAP and sell off other kind of non-core assets here and pay down the debt. But I think Elliot's bigger thing was that you've done all of these massive uh, kind of traditional linear acquisitions and like the synergies that you thought you were going to get just aren't there. And all of this kind of uh, is, is muddied together and it's dragging down your share price, right? You know, investors don't know how to properly value the business. You got so many things going on and the synergies just aren't as easily tangible as what was initially uh, purported to do. So um, I think this is the beginning of a multi kind of series episode here. Um, but so far, it's activists are um, are getting their way. I think it was Elliot as well. They also got their way with the CEO of eBay, um, who stepped down because they wanted to spin out StubHub from e- from eBay. I don't think he agreed with that. There's a few other points going on there. Uh, I don't think that was a win, though. I mean, technically, the activists won in the sense that the CEO left, but um, I don't. I think losing Devin was actually a pretty big loss, and he had a pretty good head on his shoulders. So, um, activists aren't always right. I think in this case, though, with AT and T, they are more correct than they are wrong. Um, so let's look at Russia. Uh, Yandex. It's basically the Google of Russia. They're in Plat, the ETF. Um, they published their earnings on Friday. And uh, they're up a few percentage points um, since, you know, end of last week. And um, basically, so they are Google. The majority of their revenue and earnings comes from search in Russia. But they also have something called Yandex Taxi. Um, They also are doing cloud services. Um, You know, they're doing a bunch of these different kind of platform spin out businesses, which is very interesting. Those kinds of other bets, right? And um, taxi revenue is 22% of their total revenue. Uh, and that increased by 89% quarter over quarter. They didn't beat on earnings, but they beat on growth. And as we've said, growth is really the main driver of these uh, platform conglomerate stats. It's less about how much earnings are you cranking out and more about how much growth. And um, so they outperformed on growth and the stock is doing well. But yeah, they have cloud services and other other new businesses, which is very interesting. Um, if you remember, this was the stock that took a big hit. Uh, let's see if I can pull it up on here. It took a big hit. Yeah, you can see it actually just here around like October 11th. Um, this drop from like 35, 36. That drop was because... Russia was looking into limiting um, the amount of foreign ownership in their tech companies to like 20%, which presents problems. They're a public company. Um, so that was the big haircut here. That was a government reason. And now they're you know trending back up after strong, promising results. The other thing on Russia is there's this article here that Russia is going to test its ability to disconnect from the internet. Yes, you read that correctly. Disconnect the internet. Um, 
And it talks about how they're kind of trialing this and all this infrastructure that they're doing and all these kinds of things. Basically, this is just an extension. We've spoken about how China is bringing its new form of internet to other uh, other authoritarian socialist communist countries and regimes through Belt and Road, Russia being one of them, Uganda being another one of them, and Africa. Um, I think I think China owns like a lot of the U- Uganda debt, um, and they might. You know, China's given all this debt, particularly to a lot of African countries just willy-nilly, probably half expecting them to default on it. And then now China can kind of seize a lot of control of these uh, countries because they have defaulted on this debt at like the sovereign or national level. So they're getting all this money, doing all these infrastructure projects, probably hiring Chinese contractors to actually do the infrastructure work and bring the China internet into the country. And this is the kind of stuff you see when this stuff happens. Russia will test its ability to disconnect from the internet. I mean, this stuff's not okay. Um, this is not good. Right? Like, but it, this is only the beginning. Only the beginning um, of this world of this, basically these two internets where um, you can now put all of these firewalls and all this regulation, all this monitoring. U.S. has a lot of regulation and monitoring on the internet as well via the telecom companies and the NSA and all these kinds of things. In general, this is happening. Um, The difference here is that the government is actually taking down content and uh, removing it or banning you or taking penalizing action, you know, uh, and, 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 or shutting down the internet. Everyone's monitoring it. The question is, how do you act on it? Fortunately, the U S has just been a little, a little bit more hands off, but um, this is uh, yeah, this is a whole other whole other ball game here. So last last topic of today, we've had people kind of ask us, oh, you know, what does Applico do? Um, you know, what are you guys doing with platforms? Why can why uh, why why do we focus so much on these traditional enterprises? And um, basically, our philosophy is this that. Uh, a large, if you're a mid to large size traditional enterprise, you have a lot of assets. You have a lot of untapped advantages. And when you look at how you can start a platform business, technically any startup business, but particularly platform businesses, platform businesses, by definition, they have two different user groups, right? Consumers and producers. And you've got to play this chicken and egg game. And that means, you know, you need demand to get supply and supply to get demand. And The cycle just kind of this vicious cycle just continues to repeat itself at just about every level of scale as you're growing the business. As we've seen, that can get very expensive and take a long time. Um, So when you think about, okay, how do I go about starting a platform business? Well, um, I could build it from scratch. I could raise money from VCs. And um, that's the traditional way of starting a business. Okay, great. The other way that we've seen platform businesses get started is being spun out of an existing platform conglomerate, which we've spoken about. Uber Eats being an example we talk a lot about, or a number of other, or look at Yandex and Yandex Taxi and cloud services or Amazon spitting out Amazon um, AWS. You see a lot of platform conglomerates get to the point where they are spitting out their own platforms, where they're 
basically massive new business incubation engines and they have 50 or 100 different teams. And all those teams are doing is building new businesses and tapping into the assets of the dominant platform monopoly core business, uh, which now gives you a huge leg up. If you're Google or Yandex or Uber, you have a lot of assets to create a complementary or adjacent platform business. Makes sense, right? So we've asked ourselves, why don't you see traditional businesses doing this? Why don't you see a large multi-billion dollar brand or multinational company that also has a lot of assets and advantages trying to spin out their own platforms or their own startups? Because you don't really see that happening. Um, But they have a lot of advantages, but they're not tapping into these things. So this is the first uh, thought piece or, or kind of public discussion piece on this opportunity. I think this is the next 20 years of investing. Think about it as like private equity meets venture capital. Um, if, you, if you take private equity that is buying or investing in these mid to large size kind of traditional incumbent businesses that actually have a lot of inherent assets and advantages that aren't correctly priced into the value of that company. And now you say, hey, I have the expertise. I have the ability to spin up a platform business that is going to have a higher likelihood of winning and being successful because I can tap into these untapped resources at the core enterprise. It's a pretty compelling one-two punch. So what are some of these advantages? Uh, Well, here we go. So user acquisition, access to consumers and producers. Uh, This is all the way on the left side here. So what does that mean? Um, I have customers. I have suppliers. That's one-on-one, one of the biggest challenges of a platform. If you're a large multi-billion dollar company, you definitely have customers um, that you're either working with but aren't, aren't, aren't meeting their needs or aren't catering to their needs as well as you could or should be. Maybe it's just because it's not a focal point for you. Um, what you find is that platforms and startups in general they build bottom-up, not top-down, particularly platforms. Um, you don't want to try and go to large customers or large suppliers right away because you don't have a lot of leverage when you're first getting off the ground. You want to start small. You want to start where there's a lot of fragmented uh, supply or demand because if the supplier demand is not fragmented or consolidated, A, probably not the best fit for a platform, but B, if it is and you can tap into it, Uh, on a fragmented basis, then you get a lot of leverage to then go to the larger demand or supply bases later on. And you kind of think about your user sequencing. Um, Now you have a lot of leverage. You might be able to, if you were to go to the large uh, demand or supply upfront, you might be able to get them on board with your platform. Problem is you won't get good economics from them because... You don't have any leverage. You're saying, hey, come work with me, bring your demand or bring your supply. Let's say it's a marketplace for products, right? Um, Bring your inventory or bring your demand needs. They're going to have all these requirements that the platform needs to comply with. So that takes just a lot of product and and business negotiation, A. B, um, you're not going to have good economics. They're not going to agree to your economic model, usually some kind of a take rate, let's just say. Whatever take rate they would agree to up front versus a take rate after you're able to prove that you have GMV 
and good volume and strong demand, and you've been able to fi- find and aggregate small fragmented supply, and the business is working and growing, um, the take rate that you're going to be able to command if you start there is going to be a lot higher than the take rate you're going to be able to command than if you go to the larger players from the, from the get-go. So if you're a large multi-billion dollar company, guess what you have? You have demand or supply, one or the other, or probably both to some degree. You have customers that you're either not catering to that well, or maybe you have customers that you really aren't even focused on at all, that you kind of ignore. <laughs> um, great. Channel those things on over to the platform. Same thing on the supply side. Um, you have a lot of access to supply. Either you're actively working with supply or your M&A department is looking at buying these smaller suppliers. You just have a lot of resources there. Second one here is deep industry knowledge, right? Um, especially if there's any regulatory dynamics. Um, think about uh, the data. Think about the data about here are the transactions. Here's what customers are buying. Here are the trends. Here's the pricing. Here's the product catalog. It's all very valuable stuff. Give me that information because that's going to help my platform spin out marketplace business uh, just that much smarter, help me focus a lot more, give me a foundation if I'm doing any kind of like machine learning or AI kind of stuff. Um, You just need a lot of that data and it's hard to get that data when you're starting from scratch and very small. Funding is a clear one. You know, you have capital, you have access to to capital markets, uh, these kinds of things. Um, Quality and trust. This is a biggie, particularly when you look at B2B heavy type of industries. Um, But it's just very hard for a startup to have trust and to instill trust, Uh, particularly in more mature B2C industries where Amazon has a lot of trust now. So how do you go toe-to-toe with that? Um, there is a lot of value in, in, in trust, particularly on the demand side, but sometimes more so on the supply side, which we've seen is very important for platforms. Last bullet here is user retention. What this is really speaking to is value-added services. Um, if you're a large multi-billion dollar company, you have a lot of stickiness that you've woven into your business. If we're talking about marketplaces, that could be um, a credit facility, that could be logistics, that could be fulfillment, um, that could be kind of other like loyalty programs. There are all these add-ons that could be facilitating payments, lots of things that maybe the marketplace or the, the startup doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the infrastructure, doesn't have the, the know-how for it to be as much of a priority. Um, or eventually the startup could figure it out, but it's going you know, to need to fail fast. Um, we find that there's a lot of these value-added services that you can tap into. And the core business, the enterprise business, can help lend these and layer these on to the platform startup. Um, So these are a handful of things. There are downsides that come with, if you're saying you're a large enterprise, we're going to spin out a platform startup business uh, separate from the core business. It's going to be an autonomous business. It's going to run independently from you. Um, We're going to be able to tap into all of these advantages. Sounds like a nice rosy picture, right? Um, There are downsides like speed and the ability to take risks. So naturally, the large enterprise um, will slow you down, whether that could be um, 
you know, Sarbanes-Oxley reporting requirements, whether that could be just other process legal compliance things, um, whether there could just be a lot of stakeholders that want to get eyes on this or have different requests or have different asks that they make of this separate uh, platform spin-out business. I mean, you just need to be able to manage that um, and balance it. It is there, and it's not necessarily all bad. Um, but I think if managed properly, um, doesn't doesn't take away from all the good that comes from these large enterprises. And um, you know that kind of gets to the maturity and and uh, and these other kinds of things. But um, yeah, in general, these are these handful of advantages are a very big deal. This is going to be the beginning of a series of content around how can you tap into these things? What are some examples? Kind of like enterprise hacks. Uh, and how do you tap into these enterprise assets and advantages and, advantages and, and transfer them over to these separate startup entities? This is what we do day in and day out. And uh, yeah, there's going to be much more to share on this. Thanks for joining us today. I will talk to you on Thursday. Thank you.